1: Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off.
2: Witness Docs from Stitcher.
3: Toward the end of his life, Isidore Banks started carrying a shotgun with him wherever he went. And he often drove around with a couple of his friends, who tailed him through town, followed him out to his fields, and generally acted like bodyguards. Isidore seemed to know trouble was coming.
4: At first we didn't know what to make of this. Because in nearly every other story we'd heard, Isidore had steered clear of trouble. People told us he worked hard and kept his head down.
3: But as we asked around about the gun and the guards, we started hearing other stories of Isidore. And in them, he was a very different guy. Here's former Arkansas State Representative Ben McGee.
2: There was an Italian woman whose husband had died. And when he died, the wife rented the balance of the farmland to Isidore. So a lot of the white farmers that they went to her and told her, look, you can't be doing this. You know, we got, we want to. She told him, don't come back to her house.
4: Those farmers wanted the woman's land for themselves, but there's more. It was the Jim Crow South, and an African-American man working with a white woman, it would have enraged people. But Isidore did it anyway.
2: Isidore was over to her house one evening, and the two or three of them, a bunch of white boys, called him over there, and they had a shootout.
4: In other words, white guys tried to ambush Isidore, but he was armed too.
2: And Isidore was a marksman from World War I in the Army. And he had a couple of guns with him. So Isidore shot up their trucks, and they figured out right quick they could not take Isidore.
4: Isidore blasted the white men's truck with a barrel full of buckshot and sent them scurrying back into town.
3: Another one of these stories takes place in downtown Marion, outside a department store, maybe a year before Isidore was killed. Apparently some white guy had been harassing Isidore's daughter.
2: And... One day, she was in the store or something, and he uh, obviously grabbed her or did something that, that irritated my father.
3: This is Jim Banks, Isidore's
2: son. And that they got into a fight in the store. And my father's very, very skillful at fighting. And this guy told him, this white guy told him, you'll, you'll pay for this, you'll die. You'll die, you're a dead man, you're a walking dead man.
3: Jim was about 10 years old, watching wide-eyed while the brawl spilled out onto the sidewalk. When it was over, Isidore and Jim drove off. And Isidore didn't say a word.
4: Later on in our research, we started hearing more of these stories. Like one that happened out by the Mississippi River, where a family had been getting threats about night Riders.
2: A guy used to come ten. Well, y'all gonna have to run tonight, cause somebody gonna come and burn your house down.
4: This is Tommy Gammon. He was one of the children in the family, and he says Isidor taught him how to shoot.
2: Isidor Banks. He was in the army, and see, uh, she showed he showed us how to use the gun. You know, when the, when the, when they was coming down and living, well, he had us shoot up in there, warning shots. You know,
3: these stories are all a little Robin Hoody. Passed down through generations like folktales. And they seem to begin in the last few years of Isidore's life. Right around the time he began losing his land. Suddenly the quiet farmer, the gentle guy who kept his head down, looked like he was marching into battle alone. I'm Neil Shea.
4: And I'm Taylor Hom. This is Unfinished Deep South.
3: Episode 3, Family Ties. At the height of his power, Isidore had a lot to defend. Land and family, wealth and friends. In one record, we discovered he might have been paying medical bills for people who weren't even his relatives. His community clearly relied on him. But how did he rise into that role? Who showed him the way? We wanted to know where he'd come from and who his people were.
4: So we began gathering clues. We spoke with relatives scattered across the country and started building a family tree. There were hints of white ancestry and Native American blood. Family members talked about shades of color, about cheekbones and hair.
2: My father's biracial. My father's father is English.
0: Daddy was not uh, my color. Of he was most of you all's color.
2: Uncle Isidore's father and his wife was mixed
4: breed.
5: Rome, Georgia is where it all began. Rome is
4: in the northwest corner of Georgia, not far from the borders of Tennessee and Alabama.
3: Isidore was born there in 1895. He was the third of seven children. We know Isidore's mother, Annie Butler, was a strict woman, sometimes said to be bad-tempered. In the census of 1900, she's listed as Negro, but she was also part Native American. In a local newspaper from that time, we found mention of a young Miss Butler of the Cherokee Indian nation who was attending school. It's brief, just one sentence in the announcement section of the paper. And if it was Annie, we thought the newspaper was spotlighting her for something good.
4: But when we reached out to the Georgia tribe of Eastern Cherokee, they told us no. Most Cherokees were forced out of Georgia in the 1830s, and those who stayed kept a low profile. So the article was basically an early form of doxing, a way of outing a Native American. It meant Annie had to be very careful.
3: We can't find much more about Isidore's mom We know she died young, but there is more about Isidore's dad, John Banks. According to the family lore, John Banks was the son of a white plantation owner and an African-American woman. He was eventually driven away by his white half-brothers. After that, things got pretty hazy. Tracing African-American lineage can be incredibly difficult, because the 1870 census was the first time many formerly enslaved African-Americans were counted as free people rather than property.
4: Some genealogists call that census the slavery wall. And beyond it, there isn't always a lot of detail. We were lucky to find Isidore's parents, and we doubted we'd find much more. But recently, there's been a surge of interest in stories like Isidore's.
5: My name is Carmen White. I am from St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I, in my spare time, am really big on uh, genealogy and family history research.
4: Carmen is a member of a group called Black Progen. They're activist researchers, almost like excavators of America's lost history, and they specialize in tracing African American ancestry.
5: Because you're dealing with people who were literally property, a lot of the records that you would find with white ancestors are not always necessarily present when you're when you're tracing uh, African Americans, especially those that have been enslaved. So the strategies have to be different. In
4: 2019. Carmen began tracing Isidore's ancestry for a project that focused on lynching victims, who they were, and how they lived.
3: Carmen found Isidore's grandparents in the 1870 census. Elias Banks was a white landowner living in Rome, Georgia, with an African-American woman named Nancy Banks, and their son John, Isidore's father. It seemed clear enough. But then the story turned in a different direction.
5: When I went into the D books and I was looking for banks, I kept seeing Nancy. And that's when I was like, why is she? Is it like, who is? So I opened one and it said that it was Nancy and her children, freed people, are purchasing a plot of land from this woman for $500. And a Black woman going down to the courthouse to buy land and she's including her children on the deed. And that, I think that's when I really got hooked. By
4: 1878, Nancy Banks, Isidore's grandmother, had become a widow. But it didn't seem to set her back. In the records, Carmen could see Nancy buying land, making deals, and growing the family's wealth.
5: There was a guy, I guess, who was speculating. He approached her and was like, hey, we think you have manganese ore and iron ore on your property, can we check? And she was like, sure, for a fee. And I found the the contract that she had with him where she's like, I get royalties. And you pay me a flat dollar amount every month um, and then like a percentage of manganese or a percentage of iron or a percentage of any other minerals. that. So she had money coming from everywhere with this situation. I'm reading it just like, this lady is amazing. Legit, bona fide businesswoman.
4: Carmen had never seen anything like it. Neither had her colleagues. Nancy was a single woman, formerly enslaved a member of a group that was among the least likely to leave any mark of their passage through history. And yet, there she was, building wealth in the heart of the former Confederacy. We were cheering for her immediately. But then, around the turn of the century, Nancy disappears from the record books, almost exactly the way her grandson Isidore does 50 years later.
5: Isidore built on what he learned from her. Nancy Banks should be on a monument somewhere, Some. Center or archive or school or something with her name on it. But that just goes to show you how much of a loss it was because, you know, her descendants, they should be like the Rothschilds or the whoever, like whoever the wealthy dynastic families are. They should be that, you know, and it's it's gone because of why.
3: We've come across dozens of examples in our reporting where police files, land deeds, tax books, and all sorts of other records have been lost or destroyed. And people simply vanish.
5: Because it was about erasing them. And it was about saying, you were here, but you're not anymore. And nothing that remains of you or your life can can be here. Like, it's scorched earth. You know, I think about my great-grandfather, where we have land that we can go to. And how important that is for our family.
3: Isidore's family doesn't have that. Carmen believes they should.
5: They were robbed of that. I hope that there is a recognition just of, how patriotic they were and how they were really holding America to what it promises.
3: Census records show that when Isidore was a boy, he lived next door to his grandmother, Nancy. She probably taught him, inspired him, nurtured his instincts.
4: But it was a dangerous time in the South, and Georgia in particular. When Isidore was born in 1895, a wave of violence was racing through the South. Historians call this period the age of lynching. And during the first 30 years of Isidore's life, one African-American was lynched somewhere in the South every five days.
3: And more of those lynchings happened in Georgia than almost anywhere else. One of them happened in the center of town when Isidore was seven. A newspaper article from The Time reported that 4,000 people came out to watch.
4: For African Americans, there was simply no safe place in the South during this era. But there were still a few hopeful spots. And one of them was on the Arkansas Delta, where an unusual African American enclave had taken root. As Georgia grew more violent, the Arkansas Delta glowed like a beacon on the horizon. So just after the turn of the century, Banks family packed up and headed for it.
0: This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.
1: Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a Lifetime Membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your Lifetime Membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off.
3: When the Banks family left Georgia in the early 1900s, They probably went in wagons. They were traveling toward a frontier. Not the Wild West, but the last wilderness in the East. Around the turn of the century, the Arkansas Delta was still covered in deep forests and dark swamps. There was a freshness to the landscape, a sense that here you could escape the past. One African-American bishop wrote that Arkansas was destined to be the great Negro state of the country.
6: The Delta wasn't always considered a horrific place. And I think that that's part of the story that people don't understand.
4: This is Professor Story Mackin-Ron. She teaches history at the University of Central Arkansas. Between
6: the end of the Civil War and 1920, more African Americans moved to Arkansas than any other state in the United States. And we don't talk about that. It's not part of our great migration narrative. And I think it's partly because it doesn't make sense to us that Black people would seek resources in the South.
4: Arkansas lost a lot of people during the Civil War. And to rebuild, the state needed labor. Wages were good, and there was plenty of land. And so African Americans came. And not just one at a time. During the period Professor Mack and Ron is talking about, over 200,000 African Americans moved to Arkansas. These are huge
6: organized for years in advance, migration societies that are bringing thousands of African-Americans, self-directed Black migration societies, bringing thousands of um, freed people from North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. And a lot of those individuals were headed to Crittenden County.
4: Crittenden County is where Isidore and his family moved. And in the decades before their arrival, African-Americans flocked there following the promise of land and independence.
6: And so that sort of gives this bedrock. And once you have that bedrock, it's a a virtuous cycle. These men are writing to African-American newspapers and saying, you know, come West, young man, come join us in Crittenden County and let's make these into the new South that we want.
3: By the time the Banks has arrived in Crittenden County, it had been a magnet for African-Americans for almost 40 years. They held all the top elected offices, owned a newspaper, built private schools. They ran shops and other businesses. It was a critical mass of smart, ambitious people eager to make freedom mean something.
4: This period after the Civil War was a golden moment in American history. It's called Reconstruction, and for a decade, the federal government stationed troops throughout the South. The troops kept ex-Confederates out of power, and they also helped protect newly freed African-Americans. This gave them time to prosper and organize. And in some ways, it worked. In the 1870s, almost two dozen African American men were serving in the Arkansas state legislature. Think about that for a minute. Less than a decade after the end of slavery, African Americans were well on their way, holding America to its promises and making Arkansas their own.
3: But that terrified the white community, and resentment was growing. When Reconstruction suddenly ended in 1877, federal troops were pulled out of the South, and white violence came roaring back. Lynchings increased, African-American politicians were voted or forced out of office, and the South started to sink again.
4: But on the Arkansas Delta, African-Americans outnumbered whites by six to one in some counties. They had founded entire communities, and they powered the state's economy. So in Crittenden County, that rare bubble of Black power held out a little longer.
6: I don't want to portray it as a peaceful or necessarily safe place, but it's a place that it's worth struggling because you have enough resources. And so even when Democrats retook state government, they tolerate Black voting because it was so necessary that African Americans viewed Arkansas as a desirable place to move.
3: In America, progress almost always brings a backlash. And on a summer day in 1888, about a decade before the Banks family got to Crittenden, a white mob rounded up the county's African-American leaders at gunpoint and drove them into exile. By the next morning, the governor had appointed white men to every county office.
4: Some whites called it the Revolution of 1888. Many African-Americans called it the Expulsion of 1888. Crittenden wouldn't elect an African-American to county office for another hundred years.
3: But even after the expulsion, even after the resurrection of white supremacy, and even after the start of the age of lynching, Crittenden County was still a bright spot in the South. African-Americans had the land. They had the numbers. They'd worked hard to put down roots. And that legacy lasted until Isidore was middle-aged when there were still more than 5,000 African-American farmers in Crittenden, and only about a 1,000 white farmers.
6: I can think of a picture taken in 1904, and it's in Mississippi County, which is just to the north of Crittenden County. But it's a promotional, like, move to Arkansas and buy land pamphlet printed up advertising black homesteading in eastern Arkansas. And there's this very simple little cabin made out of planed wood and a man who looks kind of like a cowboy, an African-American man on horseback, and what appears to be his wife and daughter on the porch. And so to me, it's really a vision of what, what Black Southerners believe they needed to be free to make sure that they're making freedom really mean something for
3: themselves. It's around this time the Banks family shows up in Crittenden County. Isidore was a teenager. We don't know much about his early years, but the Banks family was likely busy making investments, buying land, Meeting people who'd succeeded and hearing how they'd done it. There were rich African-American men to look up to. Towns built by and for African-Americans. And stories of people who'd stood up to white terrorists and won. Stories we may not even remember anymore. But Isidore would have been surrounded by them.
6: I think that we can't underestimate the power of the stories because this history of Black power in the Delta, Black land ownership, the desire for autonomy and community self-determination. Just because that's not in academic history or represented as well as we would want, he would have grown up with all of these stories. He would have known all the stories about white men backing down that we don't know about because that was not in the interest of white newspapers or historians to record those in the era of Jim Crow. It was a place of struggle, but it was also a place of great promise.
4: And that's what the Banks family came looking for. Years later, when Isidore taught his neighbors to fire warning shots at Knight Riders, he was tapping into that strength. Stand your ground, he was saying, because this is your ground. The first record we find of Isidore in Crittenden County comes from 1917 on a draft registration card. The United States had just entered World War I, and on the card, Isidor is listed as a self-employed farmer. He was 22 years old, and soon after, he married a woman named Alice Biggs. Then, in 1918, he was shipped off to war in France. He came home a year later, after the armistice. And it should have been a return to normalcy and peace.
3: But that summer became known as one of the most terrible periods of racial violence in U.S. history. It's called the Red Summer of 1919, because across the country, African Americans were killed in riots, fires, and bombings. Veterans, like Isidore, were among the first to be targeted. they just fought for their country overseas, and many hoped winning the war abroad would win rights and respect at home. Of course, many white people didn't see it that way.
4: The worst atrocity of the Red Summer took place just 90 miles south of Isidore's home, in a town called Elaine. There, a group of African-American sharecroppers met with a white lawyer in a small church. They wanted a fair share of profits for their work, and they were thinking about organizing. But the meeting was attacked by local whites, and in the chaos that followed, at least 200 African-Americans were massacred by policemen, townspeople, and soldiers. Isidore would have heard all about it. He probably knew people who were killed, and we can only imagine how he felt. He was 24, newly married, and his first daughter, Morel, was less than a year old.
3: But Isidore moved forward. He bought his first plot of land in 1923 for $200. And then, a couple years later, he helped bring electricity to Marion and nearby communities We don't know exactly what his role was, but people told us he was the only person around who actually knew how to string the electric cables and mount the poles, possibly a skill he'd learned in the Army. In
4: 1929, the Great Depression swept America, and in Crittenden County, it was a desperate time. Lots of families lost their homes, their land. Isidore lost some land, too. But somehow, he managed to hold on.
3: The document trail goes cold throughout the 1930s. But following a tip from a historian, we sent our producer, Laura Kalaluri, to explore a little trove of federal documents in Fort Worth, Texas.
4: They're part of an obscure collection called Negro Work Reports, where government agents documented what African-American farmers were up to during Isidore's era. So where'd
3: you find Isidore?
7: So Isidore first appears in 1940. Uh, The agent mentions that he is harvesting sweet potatoes and he actually gives a demonstration on how to store them.
4: These work reports, they gave us incredible details about Isidore's life and even his wife in the 1940s. Um,
7: he's also mentioned as having a truck to do his own hauling. He cuts his trees and hauls to the mills to be out to be out into lumber. There's a lot of typos in these <laughs> to be out into lumber. He owns a combine and harvests oat for his neighbors as well.
4: And so this is right. This is also right after the Great Depression, which is really interesting. Yeah. That he was able to bounce back that quickly. After Pretty the quickly. Great Depression. Yeah. yeah.
7: And they also in '44 we hear a little bit about Alice, um, his wife, who's raising chickens. Uh, she apparently has a very impressive 300 baby chicks. That's amazing. Yeah.
3: Isidore's brother Norman had 30 head of cattle, and he was running a business helping other African Americans buy cows of their own. Meanwhile, Isidore's nephew, John, was a rising star in the local Black Agricultural Club.
7: Oh yeah, and this is, it's significant that he's mentioned specifically working for, uh, being assistant manager of his uncle's 800-acre farm. So we know that that's
3: Whoa, Isidore. so that's yeah. Isidore's farm. And eight, it's mentioned as 800 acres? It's mentioned as
7: 800 okay.
3: acres. That's a lot of land for an African-American farmer at that time. And it goes on like this. The bankses were essentially killing it. And they were supported by the African-American community's deep roots in Crittenden County.
4: But Isidore also had working relationships with whites. In his land records, we can see that he was working with prominent local white men. He took out loans from white-owned banks... He also got loans from government agencies, and that was rare for African-American farmers.
3: Bottom line, Isidore made money. People knew it, and he was respected for it. At a point, Isidore beat out every other farmer, white or African-American, to become the county's largest producer of soybeans. In other words, he became the king of the cash crop.
4: Isidore's run of success lasted almost a decade, right up through 1948. But then, he vanished from the agricultural reports. He's just gone. Never mentioned again. We picked up his story in other records, in and textbooks and court documents. And we find that it's this year, 1948, that Isidore's fortunes changed dramatically. He suddenly went delinquent on taxes as small as $16. He was sued over unpaid bills and then failed to show up in court it seemed like everything he'd worked so hard to create was crumbling. The documents are almost 80 years old. But seeing them now, it's like watching a car wreck. 1948, three years after the end of World War II. African Americans were beginning to push for equality in new ways. And many historians call this time the pre-civil rights era. And on the Arkansas Delta, 1948 was also an important year for Isidore. He made two very big moves that put his money, his land, and his life at risk.
3: First, Isidore helped to found a cotton gin owned exclusively by African Americans. A gin is an essential piece of machinery for cotton farmers. It separates black cotton seeds from fluffy white fibers so the fibers can be sold and made into cloth. Gins are expensive, and back then, most were owned by white people, who were known to cheat African-American farmers. So in 1948, Isidore and the leading men of the community, the richest, most prominent African-Americans around, pooled their money and built their own gin. It was bold, and it made Isidore some enemies. Here's Jim Banks, Isidore's son.
2: There had been a lot of uh, uh, threats on that part because they were going to be doing their own rather than, you know, doing it with the the white.
3: Isidore's gin was new, efficient, profitable. And apparently, some white farmers wanted in on it. Jim remembers there were arguments about whether to allow whites to buy shares in the gin. Jim says Isidore wanted to keep it exclusive. African Americans only.
4: A little later that year came Isidore's second big move. It was both quieter and more profound. According to family members, Isidore had always stayed out of politics. But deep in the archives of the NAACP, we found a different story. There, on a form from 1948, was Isidore's signature, made in pencil. Isidore had joined the NAACP. And in that era, it was about the most political thing an African American could do. Southern leaders hated the NAACP and tried to outlaw it. Just joining the group could be deadly.
3: It seems like it would have been very dangerous to do that in Crittenden.
4: Oh, I think it
6: was terribly dangerous.
3: Here's Professor Story Mack and Ron again.
6: The local white power structure would see that the names and addresses of people in the NAACP were published in a local newspaper, which was basically an invitation to terrorize that family, to firebomb their house. I do remember in Crittenden just mass firings. And so the economic retaliation would have been
4: tremendous. Isidore was one of the last in line of powerful African-Americans that stretched back almost a century. He was a leader, and land was the key to his power.
6: And I'm sure that's why Banks' participation was so important. But in the community, he would have been seen as someone who could step up and serve on this incredibly dangerous committee. The perception in the community would have been that he would have been safer from economic retaliation, may have had enough land to be literally just safer from knowing if people were coming on his land. And it doesn't appear that that was actually the case for him. Um, You know, you've uncovered that his financial circumstances were greatly reduced by the mid-50s. I mean, it appears that he did suffer greatly for his participation with the NAACP.
3: NAACP records from the Crittenden County chapter are scattered, incomplete. At a point, its membership plummeted and the group went underground for safety. But we know that Isidore signed on for one of its hardest and most dangerous jobs. He joined the Legal Redress Committee, which tried to get justice in local courts for African Americans who'd been wronged by whites. Historians told us that one of the main goals for these committees was to seek prosecution for the rape of African-American women by white men. And that kind of work would have made Isidore a target, along with his land, his wealth, and even his family.
4: We're told that it was around this time that Isidore started carrying a shotgun, and his friends began acting like bodyguards. We don't know why he risked everything to join the NAACP, or why he volunteered for the hottest part of its fight against white supremacy. He obviously knew it would make him some enemies. It seemed like Isidore's late-in-life activism could have been what got him killed. Until we met someone who revealed a whole new theory about the murder, and who might have done it.
3: Next time on Unfinished Deep South.
0: Well, I know the one guy who I thought did it, you know, and I mean, he's dead too. He is good as admitted to me and I'm not gonna stay, but I mean, you know, you always want to know that justice is served, but quite frankly, a lot of times justice isn't served.
4: Unfinished Deep South is a production of Witness Docs from Stitcher and Market Road Films.
3: Written and produced by us, Taylor Hom and Neil Shea.
4: Editing by Peter Clowney, Gianna Palmer, and Tracy Samuelson.
3: The show is produced by Laura Kalaluri and Stephanie Karayuki.
4: Our executive producers are Lynn Nottage, Tony Gerber, Peter Clowney, and Chris Bannon.
3: Our mixing engineer is Casey Holford. Special thanks to our fact-checker, Michelle Harris.
4: Deep South features blues, folk, and gospel music performed by Hubby Jenkins.
3: Original theme music and score by Casey Holford, with musicians Ryan Thornton and Dan Costello.
4: Special thanks to the extended family of Eastor Banks, who gave generously of their time, their patience, and their memories.
3: Thanks also to Professor Margaret Burnham and the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project at Northeastern University, to Willie Gammon, and to the 78 Project.
4: And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen.